So last week we started this brand new series called The Upside Down Kingdom in which we're looking uh, at a famous teaching Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that that sermon does, uh, maybe better than any other place in scripture, is show us what it means to live the Christian life and really how different that way of life is than other lifestyles. And so if you tuned in last week, uh, what we looked at primarily was how the Christian lifestyle uh, is really built on a... a, um, a different set of values than the rest of the world. And so uh, we spent pretty much that entire teaching focusing on how Christianity is distinct from the world, uh, which is an important thing to understand. But before we get into the specifics of the Christian life, which we're going to in in the the weeks ahead, uh, there's another distinction that needs to be made if you and I are going to really understand what Christianity is and what it really means to follow Jesus. And that is that Christianity is not just distinct from the world, Uh, It's actually distinct from religion. Jesus could not have been any more clear about this than he was in the verses that we're going to look at today. So I'm in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, which I'm going to read on the front end here. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill, for I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." This is God's word. All through the gospel accounts of of Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's an interesting dynamic that you keep coming across, and that is that uh, the religious leaders were not only the people that Jesus got the most angry with, they were also the people who got most angry with him. Over and over again, when you just read through the the life of Jesus during his time here, you'll find that uh, the, the common people were drawn to Jesus almost magnetically. They wanted to listen to him, they wanted to be around him, they wanted to touch him, they wanted to eat with him. Meanwhile, it was highly religious people who uh, were very put off by Jesus, very offended by Jesus, um, very angry at Jesus until eventually they were angry enough to actually kill Jesus. And so one of the things that the gospel accounts forces you and I to come to terms with is that we're never really going to understand Christianity until we understand how different it is than religion. Um, not only is that the key to understanding Christianity generally, it's the key to understanding everything that Jesus says in this teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. See, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus concludes his teaching by saying that there are two paths. One leads to life and one to destruction. And then he says that there are two trees. One produces good fruit, the other produces poison. Uh, And then finally he says that there are two houses. One is built on the rock, whereas the other one is built on the sand. 
and what Jesus is really driving at there is that you have these two ways of life that on the surface look remarkably similar to one another. Um, however, one of, of these ways destroys its travelers, um, one of them poisons its partakers, and one of them collapses in on its residents. And so Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount by basically saying, choose. And so the question that, that raises for us is, what are the two ways that Jesus put before us? What are, the, what are the two ways of life that look remarkably similar on the surface, but in fact lead to incredibly different, wildly different, eternally different outcomes? And it's easy to think that, that, uh, that Jesus was talking about, you know, um, one, one way of life where you obey God's commands and then the other way of life uh, where you disobey God's commands and that those are the two paths. But that obviously was not what, what Jesus was talking about because that would not be two roads or two trees or two houses that look anything alike. And when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll, you'll, you'll find Jesus never says, here's the good people who obey God's law. And then here's the bad people who disobey God's law. Actually, instead of anything like that, um, Jesus doesn't say, you know, here's people who pray and people who don't pray. Instead, he says, uh, you pray like this, but I'm telling you to pray like this. And and kind of in the same vein, uh, he doesn't say, here's people who give to the poor and people who don't give to the poor. Instead, he says, uh, you give to the poor this way, but I'm telling you to do it this way. And, and so the point that I'm driving at here is that in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus is comparing and he's contrasting two different ways to live. However, it's not that one of these ways is obviously good and one of these ways is obviously bad. Uh, it, actually, both of these ways of life are good, at least on the surface, in that both of these groups of people are obeying God's law, yet Jesus is teaching one of them is not what they appear. Uh, one of them is a road that leads to death, and not life. One of them is a tree that produces death and not life, and one is a house resting on a foundation that will result in death and not life. Uh, and, and, and you can kind of see this in verse 19. I want to read verses 19 and 20, but we'll start in 19. Jesus says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So notice that in, in verse 19, you have two groups of people who are both in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, some of them are doing really well, others not really as well, but the point is they're both in. And then on the heels of that, in verse 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus is unapologetically, explicitly teaching in verse 20 is that the, the religious people, the, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not in the kingdom of heaven at all. They haven't even put their foot in the water yet, which is why he says our righteousness has to surpass theirs if we want to make it into the kingdom of heaven at all. And so, in other words, what Jesus is teaching in the intro to the Sermon on the Mount and all through the Sermon on the Mount is that this way of life that he came to begin that we now refer to as Christianity, it is vastly superior, it, it vastly surpasses, it is vastly beyond, and it is utterly distinct from religion and, and simply religious living. Uh, and so what that means for us today is we should never confuse, we should never confuse Christianity with simply going to church or reading our Bibles, or saying our prayers, or giving to the poor. You can do all of that and still be on a path that leads to destruction, uh, a tree that produces poison, and a house that's ready to collapse. 
Now, if, if somebody shared this link with you and you're tuning in and, and uh, you, know, you, you might not consider yourself a Christian and maybe you're skeptical to some of the truth claims of Christianity, you might be hearing this, what I'm saying right now, uh, and, and, and maybe you're thinking, well, hang, hang on a second here. I thought that Christianity was all about leaving the, the immoral life behind, the worldly life behind, and trying to live according to the Bible. Isn't that what Christianity is? Uh, and this might be really surprising for you to hear, but the answer is no. That's not what Christianity is all about. That might be what Christianity leads to. It actually is what Christianity will lead to, but that is not fundamentally what it's all about. And so in, 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 in what we're looking at today, what Jesus says is that if you and I want to enter into this thing that he calls the kingdom of heaven, which is a lifestyle that can begin right here and right now and will extend into eternity, if you and I want to get into that kingdom, then we need what I'm going to call a gospel goodness that vastly surpasses mere religious righteousness. And it surpasses it and is superior to it in at least three ways, according to Jesus' words here. First off, it's brighter. Secondly, it's deeper. And lastly, it's sweeter. So with that, I want to get right to our first idea this morning. It's that gospel goodness is brighter than religious righteousness. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, um, Jesus leans on two metaphors. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So, so first off, uh, if I can just camp on this metaphor of, of, of being the light. What Jesus is, is, is talking about here, you have two groups of people, and, um, and both of them are doing good deeds or providing light, to use Jesus' metaphor. The difference is, one of them is doing this under a basket, whereas the other one is doing this on a lampstand in a way that is, is helpful and beneficial and useful to everybody else who is in the house. And so what Jesus is saying is that really the first difference between gospel goodness and religious righteousness is found in its relationship to the world. And when I say that, that, that gospel goodness is brighter than religious righteousness, um, I mean that gospel goodness and the people who possess it, genuine followers of Jesus, um, they are both attracted to and they are attractive to the world around them and people who disagree with, with them and, and might live a different lifestyle than them. And in this regard, they are, they are exactly the opposite of, of just religious people. Religious people, on the other hand, are very turned off by and are very alienating to people who disagree with them. So let me walk through this uh, by leaning on Jesus' um, uh, metaphor of, of being the salt. First off, people with gospel goodness, um, they are attracted to the world. So in verse 13, Jesus talks about the salt. He says that you're the salt of the earth. Back in Jesus' day, uh, salt's main purpose was a preservative. Uh, you would put that in meat because meat would go bad and it would fall apart unless salt got in there. And so Jesus is, ex is explaining here the way that his original audience would have interpreted this. He's saying that, that people with gospel goodness, when they see things falling apart, uh, they, they get involved. 
They run toward the decay, they run toward the problems, they run toward the deterioration, and they do so for the explicit purpose of, of helping and causing that decay and deterioration to stop. When, meaning, when they see a person, or when they see a family, or a marriage, or an entire neighborhood falling apart, people with gospel goodness, genuine followers of Jesus, they run toward that and they get involved. Whereas religious people, to use Jesus' metaphor, they're under a basket. And what that means is that religious people, generally speaking, only want to stick together. They want to be only around people who uh, think like them, who talk like them, who look like them, and who live like them. And so they don't want to go toward people who are different than them. So first and foremost, people with gospel goodness are attracted to the world around them. But not only that, according to Jesus' metaphor here, people with gospel goodness are attractive to the world around them to people who don't think like them, who live differently than them, who disagree with their beliefs. Because, the reason I say that, is because salt had another side to it. In Jesus' day, the other job of salt, it, it was not just to preserve things, but it was to improve the quality of the food that it was a part of. Um, and so what this means is, is if you and I, if, if, if you're, for instance, salt to your small group, or you're salt to your family, or your salt on your job, or in your relationships, or with your kids, or, or what have you. What this means is that you make the environment better for, for everybody. Uh, and one of the primary reasons that gospel goodness is so attractive to the world around it is because people who have gospel goodness always make you feel better. They make you feel more loved. They make you feel more valued. Whereas religious people will always make you feel worse. They'll make you feel condemned. And they'll make you feel like, like basically you're a project. And you see this if you skip forward a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount to Jesus' words uh, in, um, in Matthew 7 uh, about judging. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 5, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Verse 5, Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, you can read Jesus' words here and think that Jesus is simply teaching that we should never make moral evaluations of anybody else, um, but that's really missing the point. What Jesus is, is actually speaking against in those words is that um, you and I should never make moral evaluations of another person with a sense of superiority. In other words, what Jesus is explaining here is that Christians, genuine followers of Jesus, are people who see the flaws in their own life as a log and see the flaws in the people they interact with as a speck. And that, that comes across in every interaction that they have with every person that they deal with. That, that, that a person who genuinely is following Jesus and growing in gospel goodness um, emanates a certain gentleness such that even when they speak into your life, they do so in a way that never causes you to walk away feeling disrespected and in a way that never compromises um, your, your dignity as a human being. Whereas, again, religious people are exactly the, the opposite of this. According to Jesus' words here, religious people are people who see their own flaws as just a speck. They always minimize the problems in their own lives. Whereas they view the flaws in, in your life and in everyone else's life as a log. And again, that comes across in the way that they deal with people and in the way that they speak to people. And that's why religious people will always make you feel worse and they'll always make you feel condemned because when they do speak into your life, it's never coming from a place of humility. It's coming from a place of superiority. And so that's what Jesus really is talking about when he explains that, that his genuine followers would be the salt and the light. Now, before I move on from this point, I, I want to make um, 
I think it's really important for me to make it very clear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. When I say that gospel goodness is attractive to the world, what I am absolutely not saying is that the gospel message itself is or always will be. The gospel message itself is always going to be offensive, at least to some people, because the gospel forces us to come to terms with the reality that first off, we are accountable to a holy God, secondly, that we have sinned against him and broken his law, and thirdly, that we're incapable of doing anything to remedy that situation on our own, which is why we need a savior named Jesus. That message, no matter what you do with it, as long as you faithfully preach it, that will always be offensive to some people. However, However, what Jesus is explaining here is that the lifestyle that grows out of the gospel, that lifestyle should always be, in a certain sense, attractive to the world, even if the world does not agree with the validity of that message. And the reason for that is because when the gospel has really taken root in someone's life, when it's really taken root in your life, it will cause you to never feel and therefore to never act superior to anyone else. To understand the gospel, really, it's impossible to feel superior to anybody else when you truly understand what the gospel means in your life. So first and foremost here, Jesus explains that gospel goodness is brighter than religious righteousness. But building off that, our second idea today is that gospel goodness um, is also, it's deeper than religious righteousness. And, and, and what I mean by this, I'm referring not to a Christian's relationship with the world, but, but more so their relationship with their own heart. See, J- Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus said those words, uh, they had a certain shock value to them. And I say that because to, to specifically say you needed a righteousness that would surpass the scribes and Pharisees would have caught people's attention because scribes and Pharisees essentially made it their full-time job uh, to study, to memorize, and to live by all of the rules found in Scripture. Uh, and so for Jesus to say you need a righteousness that surpasses theirs, I'm sure the crowd that day you know, immediately had a pit in their stomach uh, because that would have just seemed impossible. And so it raises the question, well, what, is, what does Jesus really mean when he's prescribing a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees? And if you keep reading through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that basically in all the verses that immediately follow this, Jesus answers that question. In verse uh, 21, In verse 27, 31, 33, 38, 43, in other words, over and over again after uh, that statement, um, what Jesus does is is he he employs this kind of formula. Uh, And the formula, uh, it basically goes like this. Jesus says, you have heard it said, but now I'm telling you this. And in using that formula, Jesus goes through all the Ten Commandments. And what he's doing in every single case is he's explaining that religious people by their nature tend to only be concerned with um, external, surface-level moral behavior. And and, uh, their concern really never goes deeper than that, whereas what he's explaining is that he is primarily concerned with the heart because uh, you can get all the externals right. You can get all the behavior right and still have a heart just like everyone else in the world. But if the heart is right, then those external surface-level behaviors are always going to follow. So for instance, uh, regarding murder, in the verses just after this, Jesus explains that, that religious people are only concerned with the physical act of murder. But Jesus goes on to say that if, that if, if, you, simply, if you and I simply harbor ill will for somebody in our hearts, 
if we despise somebody in our hearts and we look at somebody with a, with a kind of disdain that causes us to, to see them as a fool, Jesus says, you've already killed them. And regarding sex, Jesus says, you know, you, you, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, which everybody in that crowd had heard before. But Jesus says that if you simply look at somebody as an object of your sexual satisfaction and you have not already committed every other part of you to them in the context of the marriage relationship, Jesus says that's lust. And if you do that, even if only in fantasy, it is literally no different than if you had committed that act. And in and, and building off of that, Jesus says something that I, I actually think is even more convicting when you get down to it. Jesus explains to people that day, um, he says, basically, you might not be paying people back physically for what they've done to you, but, but Jesus offered this command that's become very famous um, in the religious and the irreligious world where he said, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you, I'm telling you, I'm commanding you, you need to learn to turn the other cheek. Now, basically what that meant is, is continuing to entertain the possibility of reconciliation between you and somebody who has caused you a great deal of pain and wronged you in a personal way. See, to turn the other cheek, I heard a pastor explain it this way, and this is, this is helpful to me. You don't turn the other cheek for the explicit purpose of getting hit again. You turn the other cheek in the hope that, that even though they, they smacked you on your cheek last time, you turn the other cheek in the hope that they might kiss you on the cheek next time, which was an expression of relationship in Jesus' day. In other words, what what Jesus is saying here is that it's not enough for you to just refrain from seeking vengeance. It's not enough for, for, for you just to, through sheer force of will, keep yourself from hurting somebody the way that they've hurt you. On top of that, Jesus goes infinitely further and he says, when you have looked at somebody who has wronged you, who's caused you a great deal of pain, Jesus says you need to treat them with hope that that relationship might have a future. You need to treat them with forgiveness. And if you do oppose them, then you do so in love. And so all that to say, when you get to the end of, of, of Jesus's, uh, really the body of this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's actually appropriate that you and I feel a certain kind of sense of deflation because Jesus... Uh, <laughs> Compared to every other teacher of ethics, nobody has demands that were, that were quite as high as Jesus's. And no one demanded obedience that goes as deep as the type of obedience that Jesus is calling for in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, what he's basically saying is that he wants you and I to have our hearts changed, and religion can't do that. See, religious people by nature might be able, uh, through sheer work ethic or willpower, to keep the rules But what they fail to understand is that they're keeping the rules with the same underlying motivations as people out in the world who are breaking those rules. They're both motivated by the same two things. It really just boils down to fear and pride. So it's it's kind of a thought experiment here. Let me just just offer this to you. Let's take two two remarkably different looking groups of people, religious people and then worldly people. All right, uh, religious people, uh, you know, the religious person tells the truth. Uh, and, and always operates with integrity, uh, whereas the worldly person uh, lies and cheats. And the worldly person lies and cheats for basically two reasons. Like I said, they're motivated by their own fear and pride. In their fear, they're terrified of losing what they have or of never getting what they want. Uh, and then in their pride, they want to get ahead of others and keep up with the Joneses and outdo people and you know, earn glory for themselves, and, 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 which is you know, obviously just pride. And so they, they cheat and they lie, motivated by both fear 
and pride. But here's a question uh, maybe you've never asked yourself before. Why does a religious person tell the truth and operate with integrity? And the answer is, the reason that religious people tell the truth is, is actually the same reason that worldly people don't tell the truth. They're motivated by the same two things. It's their fear and their pride. And what I mean by that is that in their fear, they tell the truth and they operate with integrity purely because they're terrified that God's going to get them if they don't or that they're going to be found out and their perfect, pristine reputation in the community is going to be damaged. Or else in their, in their pride, they simply tell themselves, uh, hey, I'm not a liar and I'm not a cheater. And I'm not like those people who live that way. I'm better than that. I'm a good person. And so the, the, the point that I'm driving at here is that both groups of people are doing exactly what they're doing for the same two reasons. And basically what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he asks the question, what's the difference? Because that kind of righteousness, the righteousness that scribes and Pharisees were known for, religious righteousness, all that is at the end of the day, it's worldliness with lipstick on. It's worldliness in a disguise and it's not even a good disguise. All it is is an attempt to gain leverage with God and feel superior to other people, and, and, which is what makes it so shallow. And so secondly, um, gospel goodness is so much deeper than religious righteousness. But thirdly and lastly, the last idea I wanted to offer you is that gospel goodness uh, is sweeter than religious righteousness. See, the, the good news about the Sermon on the Mount is that you can read all through it and you'll never you'll never find Jesus saying that if we try really hard to live the way he talks about here, then we'll get God as a father. Actually, just the opposite of that, Jesus instead says that the only way we're going to be able to live the way that Jesus prescribes here is if we already have and we already know God as a father. That's why, for instance, in, in verse 16, Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And what Jesus is doing with that verse is he's explaining how you and I can be the salt of the earth and how you and I can be the light of the world and how you and I can genuinely love people and stop feeling superior to other people. The key underneath all of that is we have to know that we already have God as a Father. That's why if you, if you skip ahead to chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus says something that's uh, very famous and I think very timely, specifically for the situation that we find ourselves in now. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says, This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than than clothing. Now, if you read that through a very religious lens and you treat that in a very religious sense, then what's going to inevitably happen in your life is, is you're going to start worrying about how much you worry because you're going to try really hard in light of that verse to stop worrying, but then you're going to worry about the fact that you can't stop worrying and you're just going to you know, kind of spiral down and your life's going to become a circus and it's an incredibly exhausting and an incredibly bitter way to live. But just after Jesus speaks to us about worry and actually commands us not to worry, he calls us to look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And the reason he does that is, is because he, he tells us that if our Heavenly Father cares for them, then he's going to care for us for one reason. It's because we are so much more valuable to him than plants and animals. And what Jesus is doing with that picture is he's, he's explaining to us really one of the primary differences between Christianity and religion. 
that in religion, you obey God and you try to live a good life and be a good person to try to become valuable, to try to earn a sense of valuable in the hopes that one day you'll feel valuable. That's why earlier in chapter 6, Jesus says that religious people, they give to the poor so that they can get honor from those around them who see them giving to the poor and hear about them giving to the poor. And then after that, he says that very religious people, they pray these really long-winded, complex-sounding, spiritual-appearing prayers in, in the hopes that they can get God to listen to them. In other words, what he's saying is that a religious person does what they do to try to get value. And at the end of the day, religious people don't do anything unless it's about them. Everything that they do is an attempt to try to get a need met, a deep-seated emotional or psychological or, or, or spiritual need. Nothing that they do is an outpouring of what's already been done in them. It's always an attempt to get some kind of need met, and and that's why they're so alienating. It's why religious people tend to be so insecure. It's because they are filled with fear and with pride because they never know in the core of who they are that God loves them and looks at them as a father, and he's never going to change his mind about them. And so, really, ultimately, gospel goodness is about obeying God, not in order to become valuable, but out of this, this, this inner knowledge and this inner awareness of how valuable we already are in the eyes of God, that he looks down on us and he loves us just like a good father loves his children. And the difference between that and, and, and mere religious righteousness, the difference in those two lifestyles is profound. And so ultimately, gospel goodness is, is, is sweeter. It's, an, it's a much sweeter life to live and it looks a whole lot sweeter from the outside looking in. And so the, the question that I think this raises, that I'd, I'd be asking if I were you, is, is how do I live this sweet life? And how do I experience that kind of sweetness in this life that, that can only come from knowing that I have God as a father? And the answer to that question is given by something Jesus said in this very passage, passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus said, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. See, prior to making this statement, people listening to Jesus' words that day, I'm, I'm sure, thought that he was just dumbing down the standard of the law. Because, he, I mean, he's talking about, in the, in the verses just before that, he's talking about the fact that sinners can have God as a father and know God as a father. But with what he says that I just read to you in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus is actually proving that Christians have a higher view of the law than people who are simply religious. And the reason I say that is because religious people labor under this notion and this idea that they can keep God's law and they can earn their own salvation purely through their own effort. But a Christian is somebody who, who understands, who knows that the standard set by God's law is so impossibly high that the only chance I stand is if somebody were, were to come into my life and to stand in my place and to accomplish that for me, to achieve that for me, to meet that standard for me. And that is precisely what Jesus is saying he came here to do in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And when Jesus says that he came here to fulfill the law, there's two sides to that. And I think a lot of times people only tend to view one. When Jesus says that he came here to fulfill the law, that means... Um, not only that he came down here to perfectly keep the law in your and my place, what it also means is that he came here to perfectly pay the price for all of us breaking that law 
so that we could be treated as though we never have. See, all through this teaching, the, 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 the point of this message was really to, to compare and contrast Christianity and religion and genuine followers of Jesus versus people who are simply religious like the scribes and the Pharisees. And I, I just want to do that one more time today and, and point this out. The final thing that religious people simply cannot wrap their head around is that Jesus did not come down here just to be our example. See, if, if you compare Jesus to the founders of every other major religion, that's how the founders of every other major religion came down here, whether it was Buddha or it was Confucius or it was Muhammad or any of them. All of them came down here simply to be a good example, simply to be a wise teacher, simply to point the way. But, but people who are religious have a tendency to lump Jesus into a category with those other founders of other religions and, and only look to Jesus as an example. And as long as you do that, as long as you only have Jesus and only look to Jesus as your example, you will never develop gospel goodness. Because only having Jesus as an example to you will crush you. Because you'll look at him and you'll just be forced to come to terms with how remarkably, how infinitely uh, far short you fall from that standard. And so you're, you're either going to live constantly feeling like a failure or live in denial of your failures or vacillate between the two of those. And that is where, that finally and fundamentally is where Christians and people who were just religious part ways. Christians are people who understand that first and foremost, Jesus came down here to be my substitute. That Jesus came down here to be the foundation on which you and I could build our entire lives and our entire approach to God. And what the gospel promises us is that the moment we put our trust in Jesus, not only does all of our sin become his, paid for by the finished work of Jesus at Calvary, but all of his righteousness becomes ours. Meaning the hope that we have, the promise that we have for all of us who will put our trust in Jesus is that when God looks at you, he sees you as though you have lived the life that Jesus himself has lived meaning that you get God because of your relationship with Jesus. In and through Jesus, you get God as a father. And it is knowing that deeply in the core of your being that is the secret, not just to having gospel goodness, but to growing in it all throughout your time here in this thing that we call life. So to end today, you know, the last couple of teachings that I've given um, you know, I provided an opportunity for people who want to respond to this message to, to pray, and I, and I sort of prayed on camera. I'm actually not going to do that today. Um, I do hope that, that if, if you've listened to this teaching and you've realized that what you have thought Christianity is is really just religion and, and maybe this is a little bit more compelling than you thought or you're ready to give your life to Jesus, I hope that you make that decision right here and right now uh, because literally there's nothing stopping you from doing that except yourself. All, all it takes is for you to call out to him and ask him to save you. But I, I want to leave you today with a, a, a famous line from one of William Cowper's hymns uh, that was written based off of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So I, I just want to ask you, do you see the law by Christ fulfilled for you? Has that transformed you? Do you understand what that means for you? Because if you do, it'll totally change your life.
That's it. And that's all.